Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Good to be here together. Thank you, Tyson, for leading us in worship, pointing us to the cross. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Jeremy Isaac. I'm the campus pastor for Harrison Campus, which we'll be launching in September. And uh, Pastor Eldon, her pastor here of the campus, he's away in Whistler. Okay, but it's actually a work trip. It's not a holiday, so you can still pray for him. But uh, yeah, that's where he is this morning. So I have a story that I want to start with that I heard from a congregant in Manitoba uh, a few years ago. And this is a story about his grandma. So grandma, as I'll call her, I don't know her name, lived in Verdon. It's this town of about 3,000, small town in Manitoba on the highway, very Mennonite community. Grandma lived there with a whole bunch of her family, and things were good. Her sister lived, like, just out of her back door, across an alley, right there across the alley on the other street. They could yell at each other from their back decks. You know, it was a small community, family life, kind of like Agassiz, but tighter. One day, though, Grandma and her sister got into a little bit of a debate, and that debate escalated into a discussion, which got even more heated and became a fight, and then there was silence. And there was silence for over 20 years until grandma went to her sister on her deathbed. You know what they were uh, fighting about? Who would host Thanksgiving? I would never fight about that. You can host Thanksgiving, right? But yeah, pretty sad. The sad thing is, uh, as we'll be looking at today, these broken relationships abound around us. Uh, we see them in marriages, we see broken relationships and friendships, we see them at work, we see them even here in the church, which is perhaps the saddest. And so this morning we want to see what God's Word has to tell us about how to bring healing to broken relationships. And so I want to invite you to stand, I uh, have a just very short main passage this morning that we'll read, this is John 13, verses 34 to 35. <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You may take your seats. And so this morning, we want to explore what God's Word has to say about uh, both the reason for broken relationships and what our response would be. So I've got a few points for you, as any good sermon does. Uh, first of all, the reason for broken relationships, and then a couple different ways in which we respond, uh, our heart's response, and then our hand's response. Um, but let me pray for us as we dive into God's Word. Father, thank you for your authoritative word, um, written hundreds and thousands of years ago, and yet uh, has authority for us today, has implications for us today. It's, it's just as insightful and challenging uh, for us today in our context here in North America. Um, as we dive into your word, Lord, uh, I pray that by your spirit that, that you would speak to us this morning, 
that you would challenge our sin and that you would um, create in us a, a deeper appreciation for your love for us that we might um, reflect that to others. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so first of all, the reason for broken relationships. Like I said earlier, you know, you don't have to be more than three years old to have seen broken relationships in some sort of setting or another. Sadly, even within the church, amongst believers. And we see examples of broken relationships, you know, from, from cover to cover of Scripture. I want to just highlight a handful, starting from... Uh, the very end of Scripture towards uh, Revelation and Jude, working all the way backwards. So Jude, as we spent time in last week, Martin Van Rutenberg was preaching for us. He wanted to write a letter to the church about the joy of their salvation. And yet, had to go a completely different direction because of division that was happening in the church because of false teachers coming in and preaching false doctrine. You know, we back up a little bit more. <clears throat> and we've got the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Whew, there's some issues there with the Corinthians, and Paul had to address several of them. One of them was in 1st Corinthians chapter 6, where there, were, there was such contention amongst believers that they were taking each other to court. And so Paul says, shame on you. You should be able to deal with this within yourself. Why do you have such broken relationships? We go take a big jump backwards all the way to 2 Samuel 11, where we have King David, a man that we're told is, is after God's own heart, and yet fueled by lust, he takes Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, and destroys her marriage, her relationship with her husband Uriah, first through adultery and then through murder. Like, what extents of, of depravity. Backing up more to Genesis 4, we have the first two brothers that we know of in Scripture. And yet Cain, out of, out of jealousy, he first takes his brother's life. And then he lies to God about doing it. Which brings us all the way back to, to Genesis 3, the, the fall, man's um, first fall into sin and that corruption that carries on until now where, where Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent and then fueled by pride and maybe shame, they lie to God and they sever their vertical relationship with God. Now, I honestly think that the, the vast majority of people do not seek broken relationships. Right? When we, you know, you enter into a marriage relationship or you embark on a, a close friendship or say with family or church members, you know, we invest heavily with uh, time, we invest emotional energy, we, we desire that these relationships would thrive. And yet, so often that's not the case, right? So often there's brokenness. So why is this? Why is it even within the church? I think Paul has some answers for us in Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> Let me take a look at Romans 7 verses 15 to 20. He writes, 
For I do not understand my actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. And if I do not if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's a little bit of a complicated text, but Paul's dealing in in Romans 5 to 8 with the the topic of sin. And then in chapter 7, he goes on to describe how sin is so sneaky and opportunistic, and it's taken advantage of the law, something that is not bad, it's inherently good, but the law, which, which reveals to us God ways and, and how God wants us to live and act, and sin has corrupted us and turned us away from that and to seek otherwise, to seek, seek self. And through this, even though we might desire, you know, healthy relationships, peace amongst one another, because of the sin within us, there's this, this brokenness. And so we might point fingers all sorts of other places, point the finger at all sorts of other people as the causes of broken relationship, but we have to recognize that we're also to blame. Right? Have you ever heard the saying, if you find a perfect church, don't go there? Because it'll no longer be perfect, right? You will be there. It's true. Uh, This is not a perfect church, by the way. This is a church full of sinners in need of God's grace, and and praise God for that. Previous church that I worked at in Winkler was the same. (laughs) Like this church, like any other church, church full of sinners in need of God's grace. Unfortunately, there we saw times when... uh, you know, that sin resulted in an elevated tension and division in the church to the point that at some points it felt like an exodus, like people were just leaving in droves and those who weren't leaving were, were tempted to leave. Now, there's a, a middle-aged woman in the church whom I will call Rochelle, uh, incredible woman. She had served the women leading Bible studies. She led on committees. Um, she was just a, a faithful hard-working student, sorry, student, servant. Um, And beyond that, Rochelle was just an incredibly loving woman. She loved others and and she did it well. And she would often come by the church and and come talk to us pastors and we'd have some, you know, deep and and honest conversations. I remember at, at one of these points when the church was going through a tumultuous time, sitting down with her and, and having the conversation, like, Rochelle, how are you and your family feeling? Like, are, are you also leaving? Her answer surprised me. She said she was scared to leave. And I just assumed, oh, I guess 
you know, you've been in the church so long, you're scared of stepping out and having to find something new. You don't know what a new church in town might hold for you. But she clarified, no, I'm, I'm actually scared of leaving because I'm afraid that I will bring the division in our church to any new church that I would attend. Now, Rochelle was one of the most loving, positive contributors to the church there. But she had this humility to herself in which she recognized her own sinfulness. She recognized the role that she had to play in the brokenness that she saw around her. And I think that is a, such a crucial recognition as we deal with broken relationships of any sort that we recognize our sinfulness first. There's always, it takes two to fight, right? But we have to own up to our mistakes, to the negative contributions that we've made. And first and foremost, we have to recognize our sin the condition of our heart, that's what fuels that brokenness. And first and foremost, before we can get horizontal relationships between, between one another right, we've got to take care of business vertically. We need to reconcile with God. Because if we don't take care of that vertical relationship, all of our efforts horizontally, they're for nothing. Listen to a, a quote by John Henderson. He's a pastor uh, and author of a book called Catching Foxes. He writes, There are no secrets that guarantee problem-free relationships. We all look for strategies or techniques that will free us from the pain of relationships and the hard work good relationships demand. We hope that better planning, more effective communication, clear role definitions, conflict resolution strategies, gender studies, and personality typing, to name just a few, will make the difference. There may be value in these things, but if they were all we needed, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection would be unnecessary or at best redundant. Skills and techniques appeal to us because they promise that relational problems can be fixed by just tweaking our behavior without altering the bent of our hearts. But the Bible says something very different. It says that Christ is the only real hope for relationships because only he can dig deep enough to address the core motivations and desires of our hearts. So church, as we, as we see brokenness around us, as we're maybe even part ourselves of, of broken relationships, would we recognize we've got to fix that vertical relationship with God first? And would we recognize we're completely incapable of doing it? You know, it is only through Christ's death and resurrection that we can be reconciled to God. Christ paid the price for our sins. He purchased our redemption, our forgiveness. And through that, as we repent of our sins, we can have that vertical reconciliation. 
And then out of a place of healthy relationship with God, a restored relationship with God, we can seek to restore horizontal relationships. Now, with that gospel foundation, uh, I want to move on to to look at two, two practical ways in which we respond to broken relationships around us. The first is our heart's response to broken relationships. Basically, forgiveness. Forgiveness is, is such a crucial step. When we've been in some sort of fight or argument and we feel wronged by the other party, to bring any sort of reconciliation, we need to be willing to offer the other party forgiveness. This can be extremely difficult, right? Because Joe may have hurt me severely in one area and may, for example, never recognize the hurt that he's caused me. And yet, God still calls me to offer forgiveness to Joe. And in fact, Jesus gives us a powerful warning in Matthew chapter 6 about the importance of forgiveness. So Matthew 6, we have the, the Lord's Prayer. And then right afterwards, we get a couple verses where uh, yeah, Jesus warns us very strongly, saying, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Are you, you hearing this? Forgiveness is so incredibly crucial. You know, I think we, tr we try to make this more palatable. We try to make excuses. We try to justify holding on to bitterness or anger towards someone. But the fact is that our salvation can hang on the line on whether we're willing to forgive others or not. Uh, the one extreme we, we, we can't go to is to say that, uh, you know, we actually earn God's forgiveness. We earn God's salvation through our act of forgiveness. Now, that would be salvation by works. But we got to take this at face value that Jesus is saying to a very great extent God's forgiveness of us hinges on our forgiveness of others. I want to try and clarify this a little further with a parable that Jesus shares later on in the Gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35. Uh, and I'm going to be reading out of that, the NLT. Jesus said this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him just millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, everything he owed to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please, be patient with me, and I will, I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. 
But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him just a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and and begged him for a little bit more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it. Sound familiar? But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Listen to these last couple verses. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. powerful warning from Jesus that if we do not forgive others, God cannot forgive us. And in this parable, Jesus shares this example of of jail. Jesus is referring to hell. That is how important it is that we forgive others from our heart, that we might receive God's forgiveness which he grants so freely. Now, we're called to do this regardless of the size of the offense. We might say, oh, you know, it's, it's easy to forgive that thing, but you don't know what, what this person did to me. That's unforgivable. Well, I want to share with you a, a story from a book titled The Devil in Pew Number 7. 1969, a young girl named Rebecca Nichols and her family, they moved to Sellerston, North Carolina, so that Rebecca's father, Robert, could serve at the Free Welcome Holiness Church as a pastor. Robert and his family were warmly embraced by everyone in the church, with one exception. Glaring at him from pew number seven was a man obsessed with controlling the church. That man was Mr. Horry Watts. Mr. Watts was well off in the community and and well connected. He was used to calling the shots in the church, that is, until Robert came and began pastoring there. When Pastor Robert didn't fulfill Mr. Watts' every whim, Mr. Watts began doing everything he could to drive him out of town. Mr. Watts was every pastor's nightmare. If the, the preacher was going on too long, He'd start pointing at his watch. Would not go over well here. Uh, If you know what I'm saying. Oh, someone's lifting a phone. (laughs) Uh, And if the the preacher didn't stop, then he would walk out of the church and slam the door behind him. Got so bad that the church had to replace the doors with non-slamming doors. But that was only the beginning. Mr. Watts worked his way up to harassing phone calls, threatening letters. When that did not work, he resorted to drive-by shootings, 
when even that did not work, it's, it's crazy, this is a true story. When that did not work, he started planting dynamite around the church and the parish that Pastor Robert and his family lived in. It was brutal. The Nichols, they knew that it was this man, Mr. Horry Watts, that was terrorizing him, but they couldn't prove it. And the police were moving painstakingly slow. Instead of taking matters into their own hands, though, Rebecca watched as her parents brought Mr. Watts before God. They prayed for him. They prayed that he would come to know Jesus. Although there'd be breaks in the harassments, sometimes even a few months, um, the fear of the next explosion just tormented Rebecca. I had a hard time sleeping at night, she recalls. I would always try to crawl into my parents' bed. At night, as a, as a little girl, I could look out my bedroom window and see Mr. Watts pacing back and forth in front of our home, plotting his next move. He stalked our family. After every effort to run the Nichols out of town failed, the unthinkable happened. Mr. Watts knew that the Nichols were taking care of a woman who had been in an abusive marriage. And so Mr. Watts talked to the husband and got him to take care of the Nichols. One evening, this man walked into the Nichols' house and shot Rebecca's mother and father. Um, with her mother lying dead in the next room and her father seriously wounded from a gunshot, Rebecca ran to the neighbor's house for help. Rebecca says the years of torment and anxiety and the loss of his beloved wife took a severe toll on her father, not just physically, but mentally. Mr. Nichols died a few shorts later from a blood clot. He was only 46. Both Mr. Watts and the shooter eventually did go to prison. And then out of the blue, when Rebecca was just 17, she received a surprise phone call one day from Mr. Watts. She answered, and he said, I can't live the rest of my life without knowing if you've forgiven me or not. Rebecca replied, Mr. Watts, my brother and I forgave you a long time ago. Mr. Watts just sat there and wept. When people asked Rebecca, how did you manage to forgive? She tells them she was only able to forgive because of the revelation of how Christ forgave her on the cross. See, regardless the size of the offense, God's call on our life is that we would forgive others. You and I, we owed an immense debt, an eternal debt, one that we could never repay. And yet God took the initiative to pay that debt for us by having his son die on the cross. If you and I have been shown such immense mercy, how can't we show just a reflection of that to others? So forgiveness is, is absolutely crucial in, in this journey of seeking reconciliation and healing in broken relationships. But our, our passage in John 13, Jesus takes it a step further. And he, he offers us a response for our hands. 
So I want to go back to our first couple of verses, John 13, verses 34 to 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Jesus is, is speaking these words at a very difficult time in his life. I want to back up a little bit to the beginning of John chapter 13 and show you the, the context in which Jesus is saying these words. Verses 1 to 2. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Jesus speaks these commands to his disciples at the Last Supper. He knows that in just a few short hours, his betrayal, trial, beating, and death is coming. And yet, even though he's, he's sitting there with a group of men who will flee from him, who will run away, you know, Peter, a man who will deny having even any knowledge of who he is, even though he's sitting right there with Judas, the man responsible for be betraying him to death, Jesus goes on to, in a very humble way, in a very servant-like way, show them practically his love for them. Verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Foot washing isn't something that we practice every day in, in our context, the 21st century, but this was one of the, the most humblest ways to serve someone. In fact, it was, it was something that someone like Jesus would never have done this was reserved for non-Jewish slaves. They would be the ones that would wash someone's stinky, dirty, smelly feet, right? You think your feet or your spouse's feet stink at the end of the day wearing shoes and socks. These were, people wore sandals, right? Went, went barefoot everywhere in the dust of the street. And yet Jesus, Jesus humbles himself in a group full of men that would leave him, you know, that would deny him, that would even betray him, Jesus goes to the point of loving them, serving them. And he calls us to do the same, right? In verse, verses 34, 35, we're called to love one another as Jesus has. In verse 15, Jesus says that, for I have given you as an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Now, we're not going to have a foot washing ceremony right now after this service. Maybe should, maybe not. Uh, but what Jesus is getting here is that we're called to, to serve others, 
to, to demonstrate his love in, in active ways. And to do that even to those who've, who've hurt us, right? There may be situations where because of a, a power difference or, you know, an abusive situation that, that this is not wise to do, not, not an appropriate measure. But in many occasions, as the Spirit leads, this is even a way to bring healing in a broken relationship, to demonstrate in a physical manner God's love and, and our love for someone. I believe this can be uh, not only an incredible way to show that person love, but also to, to confirm and to ensure our forgiveness in our hearts, right? That we forgive them in our hearts, that is sufficient. And yet to go this extra step and to love someone practically that's hurt you in the action that can confirm that act of forgiveness for them. Most importantly, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? In a world that might say, you know, if that person hurt you, write them off, right? Don't talk to them again. Or seek their demise, seek their, their, I don't know, their, seek evil for them. But for us to, to go in such a countercultural direction, motivated by the example of Christ, to forgive them and to show them love, can be just a powerful picture of the gospel for them, for others around us. So may we be people that, having experienced the forgiveness and the love of God, that we show that to others. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you um, for your forgiveness. Thank you for reconciling us to God through your death on the cross. Uh, you did what we could never do. And you uh, demonstrated the, the, the greatest show of love by giving your life for us. Jesus, would that so impact us and, and transform us that we would actually be quick to forgive, quick to, to love others, and, and in so doing, show a world that uh, can often be so full of, of hatred and, and bitterness, to show them the gospel and to point them to you. We depend on you <laughs> to do this. We, we can't do it on our own. So would you work in our lives by your spirit and just conform us daily into your image. You're so good, Jesus. Uh, we thank you for your love. Um, we love you. We praise you. We pray this all in your good name. Amen.